Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired September 19th, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show focuses on the people teaching at your son or daughter's college or university. Did you know 7 out of 10 faculty on U.S. campuses are not eligible for tenure? If you don't work in academia, that number might not stand out to you. But today, where we live, we explore the reliance of colleges and universities on non-tenure positions, including adjuncts or part-time faculty. And we hear the consequences of this. Coming up, we'll be joined by a reporter from Inside Higher Education, and we'll learn what's being done to help adjuncts get better pay and more stability. We'll also hear from adjunct faculty working in Connecticut. First, joining us from a studio at The Atlantic is Adam Harris. He's a staff writer covering education at The Atlantic. He's also currently writing a book about racial inequality in higher education. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I should uh, mention to our listeners, earlier this year, uh, you wrote a piece titled The Death of an Adjunct. I first saw that uh, shared on Facebook. And when I read about Dr. Thea Hunter, I have to say I couldn't stop thinking about her, Adam. Tell us about Thea. How did you hear about her? Uh, so Dr. Hunter uh, was a adjunct professor at several different institutions in the New York City uh, metro area. Um, but she studied with Eric Foner and several of her colleagues um, who were in the graduate program with her at Columbia University um, had been passing around. There was a GoFundMe um, because uh, Dr. Hunter had passed away. Um, and I just kind of in, in speaking with some of her former colleagues and hearing more about her backstory, um, it, it, her story and, and her writing and her brilliance um, seemed remarkable to me. And and the fact that she wasn't able to secure a, a tenure track position seemed um, kind of ghastly. And so I, I kind of wanted to figure out why and, and, and what were the machinations at play um, that, that kind of led to this point. Uh, when we talk about uh, Thea, uh, before we get into um, the different positions that she tried for and also the ones she held uh, at different institutions, so what was her track uh, in terms of when she went to graduate school, um, the type of uh, research that she did? Uh, she was someone that uh, people saw as a rising star. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, she studied with um, Dr. Eric Foner at Columbia University, who's you know, a renowned American historian of the, the Civil War and Reconstruction period. Um, and, and Thea, at the time she entered the program, historians were kind of looking for um, a, a new perspective on, on early American history. Um, and it, it was kind of an Atlantic perspective, right? The, the kind of transfer of ideas um, across across the water. Um, so from uh, from Europe to the Americas, and, and kind of this interchange of ideas. And and so she starts to look into this case, um, the Somerset case, mm-hmm. um, which kind of began with this a black man who had escaped slavery for a month, and then he was uh, forcibly taken from England to the colonies, and. The difference between his case and, and several other cases is that he ultimately ended up arguing for his freedom and won his case back in back in England. Um, and and she was able to connect the um, ideas of freedom and emancipation and, and abolition um, from that case to kind of 
our American understanding of it um, in the mid 1800s. And and um, Dr. Foner called it, you know, pioneering. Mm-hmm. So when she was entering the job market, she was truly pioneering a new field or a new perspective on on um, American history. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why after she gets after she finishes her, her PhD, uh, doesn't wait too long to find a job on the job market. Um, and that was uh, before the recession. So she was on a, a tenure-track job uh, here in Connecticut at Western Connecticut State University. Yes, yes. She, she got a position um, at Western Connecticut State in 2004. And, um, you know, she was an assistant professor of history and non-Western culture. And um, it wasn't too far from the New York area, which was important to her um, because all of her family still really lived in the New York area, and her mom in particular. So um, she gets to Western Connecticut State, and at first the the job is great. Um, she really enjoys her students. She really enjoys teaching. She really enjoys her research. But um, slowly there, there are little things that start to wear on her. Um, mm-hmm. You have... Uh, she gets to campus early and she's the only person in this in the building and she's also a black woman and she's sitting at her desk and people will come in and ask her if she's the janitor or um you know parents will call the school and ask if she has uh, her phd you know and, and having come from columbia setting with mm-hmm. with some of the the most renowned historians of the world it's it's um it's kind of jarring so she was she was there were these kind of microaggressions and macroaggressions that had been building up over a course of time that just kind of weared on her or wore on her and mm-hmm. um and they kind of once they build up enough it can kind of beat you down uh, you talk about her experiences at uh, Western Connecticut State University. Uh, you know, at the same time in your article, you're also writing that over a 20-year period, the percentage of underrepresented minorities in non-tenure track part-time faculty positions grew by 230 percent. But during the same period, minorities in full-time tenure track positions grew by just 30 percent. And so I'm just curious, uh, as Thea um, was experiencing uh, these, uh, these uh, you know, negative impressions of her despite her, uh, you know, very rigorous uh, academic uh, background and talent, uh, the long commute to New York, uh, even though she was on this tenured track job, this was not something that she could stay in? Yeah, and and this is actually something that kind of across academe today, um, you 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 kind of see where um, professors of color, um, black professors, Latino professors, will experience these microaggressions. Academe has not necessarily been the friendliest place for minorities, um, and then kind of given um, the numbers that you mentioned, where you know two hundred thirty percent that's the the growth in non tenure track faculty positions compared to this thirty percent figure. It's kind of an un- unsustainable model at this point. Um, so she she knows that if she's going to leave this position at Western Connecticut State, it's going to be leaving a, um, a modestly defined path towards security. Um, but also when you're dealing with all of these microaggressions on a day-in, day-out basis, it, it can take a toll on you. Um, so one of the things that, that she believed was that, you know, I have these credentials. I'm I'm um, I'm eminently qualified mm-hmm. for any any other position in 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 this area is thick with with colleges. Um, so I should be able to find another position. Um, so she ultimately ends up leaving her position at Western Connecticut State. I'm talking with Adam Harris, staff writer covering education at The Atlantic. Uh, we're focusing on a story he wrote uh, several months ago titled The Death of an Adjunct. We're hearing the story of Dr. Thea Hunter, uh, someone, again, uh, who was uh, brilliant uh, by uh, the people that worked with her, um, her colleagues and friends, and uh, many different uh, 
things happened uh, in her track that she was unable to stay in a, a tenure path uh, to a full-time position with stability. And so, Adam, she made the decision to leave uh, this particular position. And so, again, this is before the recession. You mentioned she thought, you know, I, I should be able to find another um, uh, a comparable role. But what happened to her? Um, so after she leaves this position, her friend, um, uh, Dr. Jim Downs, who's a professor um, in Connecticut as well, uh, at the time he was on a three-year teaching appointment at Princeton. And so he invites her. He says, you know, you should you should apply for, for this opening to replace this professor, Colin, um, Dr. Colin Palmer, um, who would be going on, on a medical leave. Um, so the position would have been to, to fill that, and then she would have been moving into this teaching appointment that he was similarly in. Um, and during the time that she was in the one-year um, appointment uh, to, to replace Dr. Palmer, um, things were going great. You know, she had a one-one teaching load, um, so one class in the fall, one class in the spring. Uh, she was able to research and read and write and kind of do all of the things that she wanted to do as a professor. Um, but then once that one-year appointment ended, um, she had been moved into this kind of teaching assistantship um, where she was teaching five to seven discussion sections, and uh, there was little time for the research and reading and those those other kind of things. Um, and then as the res- you kind of move into the recession, mm-hmm. um, that kind of even even modestly defined kind of security kind of falls apart. And so the positions that she uh, could actually uh, get were these part-time adjunct positions, not the tenure track. Yes. Yeah. And she um, she ended up kind of teaching at a, at a range of different places. So she taught at the new school. She got a distinguished teaching award there. She taught at NYU. She taught at um, Montclair State. She taught at Manhattan College. Um, she she taught at a private high school. Um, so she was kind of teaching a little bit of everywhere. Um, and and one of the things that you know, she was she was always angling for this another tenure track position. But one of the things that that happens, and this is a thing that her friends were telling me, is when you're when you've done so many adjunct positions, it starts to look like you have a scattered resume rather mm-hmm. than you are trying to continue working in academe until you got a tenured position. Um, so so the holes in her resume, the gaps in in the places where she had published in her research, um, those things started to add up on her resume as well. It almost uh, is contrary to uh, how the rest of the uh, the job market and the workforce, when you see uh, people gaining a lot of experience in different places, that can be an attribute. But in uh, colleges and universities, as you mentioned, the as her resume uh, held several different positions, that's not something that it, people look uh, favorably on, Adam? Yeah, it's, it's more of an, uh, I think it was described as an odd trajectory, right, where it's... Um, it's it's not necessarily the okay you've you've gotten your PhD you um, maybe you did a postdoc and then you you went into a tenure track job it's you had a tenure track job and then you moved into a visiting professorship and then you moved into a teaching assistantship and then several different adjunct positions so what happened along the way that you weren't able to get another tenure track job there and the salary also uh, not something that pays the bills well Adam. Yeah, um, there's there's a little bit less um, kind of in terms of on a contract basis, adjuncts are going to receive X amount of dollars per um, per class that they're teaching or per hour that they're teaching. Um, So it's not the salary. It's not the benefits. Um, You know, you're not going to get the health benefits. And some of those things can also weigh on you, too, because in addition to you having to pay for you're just getting a chunk of money. Um, you have to pay for your health insurance on top of that. Um, and and that's just not something that ends up getting rolled into your whole package. Mm. 
Uh, as you reported on this story, uh, hearing about uh, the instability of uh, that she faced in her career, uh, the added stress, um, not having uh, good benefits or health insurance, uh, what kind of toll did that take on Thea? Um, it, it, in emails back and forth with friends, she she was kind of saying that she was she was kind of drained. Um, it, it is it was an emotionally and, and physically taxing time. Um, and then as health issues mounted as well, um, it was a very um, challenging and taxing time for her. Uh, she, she began retreating away from friends, um, and and they just kind of described it as, as she was changing um, because it was a, a very difficult time. She had a dog who, who she got when, when things were getting a little bit rough um, prior to the recession, um, and her dog passed away, her mother passed away. So it was kind of all of these things that were building up to, to um, kind of weigh her down. Uh, in your story, The Death of an Adjunct, uh, earlier you mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Downs, who is a professor here in Connecticut as well. He's the one that got the phone call when uh, she fell ill at a New York hospital. Uh, uh, what did they tell him? Um, so initially when he, he received the call, um, there was a, it was a call from a social worker, and they were trying to um, locate a blood relative of, of Dr. Hunter. She had written his phone number on the back of, uh, or had written down his phone number. And um, so they called him, and eventually they, they told him that, that Dr. Hunter had died. Um, a doctor had called later to explain what happened to her. Um, and you know, after that, he, he, he starts calling friends. He starts calling classmates and colleagues. Um, they needed to find her brother. They uh, kind of needed to raise funds for the memorial service, so they start the GoFundMe. But, um, but they also needed to start the GoFundMe because they needed to, to retrieve her body from the morgue. Mm. Uh, in her obituary, her friend uh, Jim Downs, as we mentioned, uh, shared this, uh, quote, Thea would always say that she had three advanced degrees, trained under one of the leading historians in the country and enjoyed both research and teaching, but could not understand why she could not get a full-time job that would have given her the chance to write her book and to pursue her other research projects. Uh, some who may be listening uh, might wonder, why did she stick with it? Why didn't she just leave uh, academia? So th there are, when you're, when you're kind of in this, this kind of life of the mind, and she, she, was, she was very much a part of that, where she, she believed that she was doing something that was important. Um, she was following one of her passions. She was also teaching, and she was winning awards for her teaching. So it, was, um, it seemed that you know, maybe the next break was, was right around the corner. Um, and then also one of her friends, uh, as they told me, you know, a lot of people are, they get these advanced degrees. As her friend um, Ruth Henderson, who is also an adjunct professor, said, there are these people who go and get these advanced degrees and they're not doing it because they want to do it. Um, but she had this, this pure desire for learning and teaching. Um, and so she kept, she kept going. She kept trying to, to get that, that tenure position that would provide her with this, this job security. Mm. Adam Harris, again, a staff writer covering education at The Atlantic. Adam, before you go, what has uh, been the reaction to that story you wrote about Dr. Thea Hunter? Um, there's been an outpouring of um, you know, responsive people who have gone back and some people have gone back and read her dissertation or, or read some of, of her papers. And um, the next the next step is her, her friends have um, sent her papers to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, um, where uh, they'll be included in her collection and uh, or in their collections. And um, she's the forthcoming editor on a, a volume um, with uh, Dr. Downs and, and two other uh, colleagues. And 
um, there's this really just kind of been a, a discussion, and this this happens several over and over. But it's kind of there's been this discussion of of what are we actually doing to people who are we who we are subjecting to this adjunct system to this contingent life um, as adjunct faculty members. Mm. Adam Harris is also currently writing a book about racial inequality in higher education. Adam, well, we thank you for joining us today to tell us a little bit about Dr. Thea Hunter. We'll make sure we link to your story uh, at Where We Live. Adam, thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathancha. We're going to continue uh, this conversation. Again, uh, this rise in colleges and universities uh, relying on these non-tenure track uh, faculty positions, including adjuncts. Uh, we're going to hear from some Connecticut residents who are adjunct professors, and we want to hear from you, too. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired on September 19th, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, if you want a career working at a college and university, the tenure track is the path you want to get on, unless being part-time faculty is a better fit for you. But being an adjunct is hard, as we just heard from The Atlantic's Adam Harris, because of the long hours, the heavy workload, and the insufficient pay. We want to talk with Connecticut residents who are adjuncts, and we'll be hearing from them in just a couple of minutes. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Rachel's calling in from Cromwell. Rachel, go ahead. When I was finishing up my Ph.D. at Rutgers University, I had the opportunity because I no longer had funding at Rutgers. I was teaching at Princeton at the same time as Thea, and I got to know her a little bit, and she was an incredibly kind and warm individual. When I read the Atlantic article several months ago about her death, it, it struck me very, very hard, somewhat also because one of the other people who was in a similar position to Thea as what was recently described as a glorified TA ship, he also died as well, mm. too. And so it just strikes me odd that two of these people who were in similar positions both died several years after, after being in them. And I also had the experience of finishing up my PhD and going on the job market for a tenure track position right after the recession began and was really after five years unable to secure long-term employment. I had had a postdoc. I, I, I adjuncted various institutions across the country and was still unable to do so. And I eventually left pursuing a tenure track job and now work in administration at a university, which I find very rewarding just for the record. Mm -hmm. But it was an incredibly difficult decision to make. I had not been trained for it as a graduate student, and many of the faculty and other uh, and my other colleagues as well, too, really couldn't understand why I was willing to make that choice and and why that was the best choice for me, and they weren't terribly supportive about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that also my experience might speak towards the, the sort of larger infrastructural issues that people have about leaving pursuing a tenure track job because they don't know how to do it and they don't have the support necessarily for it from their colleagues. 
Thank you for calling in. And again, we're sorry to hear about uh, the passing of, of your colleague, Dr. Uh, Thea Hunter. Today, we're looking uh, more into uh, the fact that uh, the rate of or the number of non-tenure track faculty at U.S. colleges and universities um, has risen significantly over the last uh, few decades. We wanted to hear more about what it's like to work uh, as part-time faculty or to not be able to be on that tenure track where um, you're guaranteed job stability and better pay. Uh, joining me now in studio is MJ Moriarty, who is an adjunct faculty member who teaches creativity and communication at three local colleges, University of Hartford, Manchester Community College, and Connecticut, uh, Central Connecticut State University. Uh, MJ, welcome to the show. Thank you. When you were hearing about Dr. Thea Hunter, what was your reaction to her story? Well, it's an incredibly sad story, and I think one that's um Almost like a, she's almost like the poster child, I think, of people who go into academic careers these days, particularly around the time of the Great Recession. I think a lot of things changed for people. My story is a little bit different. I think people kind of fall into this in different ways. There's the people who are pursuing an academic career from the beginning, like Dr. Hunter, who are you know their their whole lives are really devoted to this. And then there are people who adjunct who kind of see it as like the capstone of their career and they kind of do it for fun at the end, maybe after they retire or you know, near the end of their career. And then there are people like me who kind of stumble upon it midlife and realize, oh, this is what I want to do. I didn't really think about it before, but this works great for me. I went into it knowing that I wasn't a tenure track material. So I just had to figure out how I could make it work for me. Uh, joining us by phone is Warren Towler, who's also an adjunct professor at Capital Community College in Hartford. Uh, he teaches uh, economics and first-year experience, but has also taught American government and African-American history. Uh, Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad sh- to be here. I should mention uh, you are a Columbia grad, uh, similar to uh, the woman we just heard about, Dr. Thea Hunter, who unfortunately uh, passed away. Um, and we heard a little bit about some of the factors uh, that uh, led or were happening uh-huh. in her life. Um, so, Warren, uh, tell us about yourself and how you got into, uh, you know, working at, uh, wanting to work at a college or university. Well, I'm more was in corporate world for about 28 years. When the recession hit, uh, my position was uh, downsized, as they say. And after a back into my position, and thankfully for 99 weeks of uh, unemployment compensation, my first um, adjunct contract came the very week that my unemployment compensation stopped. But in between, I was actually a volunteer at Capital. I was volunteering in the Academic Success Center as a tutor, my first teaching position. Mm -hmm. And so this was uh, something that you started uh, mid-career working uh, at a college or university. Exactly. And I was teaching my major in college's economics, so that's what I was teaching. Really enjoyed it, enjoyed working with the students, and uh, learned some interesting things along the way about what we call adjuncts, which I saw my term of endearment is academic nomads, because we basically go from contract to contract, semester to semester. So there's always a degree of uncertainty as to whether you're going to have classes the next semester or if the ones given you this semester are going to run because of enrollment. And so how do you get the word out about uh, the courses that you'll be teaching? And because of that, uh, not um, having that continuity, how do you make ends meet? Well, I'll tell you what I do. <clears throat> my MBA is in marketing. I start marketing my course to students in, in the college. 
I stop by the cap, you know, by the cafeteria, the student centers, and I just uh, network and get people interested in it and uh, spread the word. Then when I have online courses, I reach out to friends of mine at other uh, colleges or people in other areas, church to talk about uh, the opportunity of taking a three-credit course over five weeks versus 14. And I've had students in my class from other, from Virginia, from California. I uh, even had one year, I had three students actually enrolled in a class from Cutter. And so if you so don't... I market it. I, if I aggressively you, market it. If you don't get uh, your class filled, what does that mean for how you pay the bills? Well, that's the thing, and it's an old biblical adage, if you don't work, you don't eat. So if my class does not get filled, there's no compensation. What I learned the first time that happened, <clears throat> I said, okay, I'm going to be off for about four months. I went to the Department of Labor to apply for unemployment. I was rejected because they said if the college has offered you classes in the next semester, then you don't qualify for unemployment compensation at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So through the course of going through loan modifications and uh, tapping every friend and family member that I know to help me pull through. I came up with another plan last year. I actually went back to school and uh, took the course, passed, and became a licensed EMT. If you so have, I do that on I do that on the weekends to help supplement. If you had the opportunity, uh, you'd want to teach full time. Uh, be on. I'm just curious about what your what you would hope to have. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I know there's been, a, at least in the Connecticut system, I know there's been a hiring freeze on, as I've been told, over the last several years, because I had a department chair at one time said, I wish I could hire you full time, but I can't. Uh, we got and the other, other point, just a quick stat I want to throw in there, uh, which surprised me, but at our school, our teaching uh, staff is comprised of almost 80% adjuncts. Adjuncts are limited to eight credits per semester, and seeing most of the courses are three credits apiece, that means six is the number you can hit, and the compensation, and you need two courses to basically survive, but um, basically the compensation is about maybe $75 a week over what I was collecting on unemployment. So it's a real hand-to-mouth adventure. Uh, we got an email from Kevin, who's also an adjunct professor. Uh, part of his email, uh, he wrote, some part-time faculty use food trucks and the food pantry and have various forms of public assistance to get by each month. During winter breaks and summers, most of us don't get to teach. However, the way federal labor law is written, we cannot, in most cases, receive unemployment when we're laid off. Uh, so this, exactly. this, doesn't, this is no surprise to you from your experience, Warren. Not at all. I I mean, I work with a social worker in my town, and I've had access to the food bank, so I've done that. Um, I've had energy assistance. I've had help from my church. I've had just everything to try and, you know, just try and keep the family going. On the phone with us again is Warren Towler, who's an adjunct professor at Capital, Capital Community College in Hartford. In studio with me, MJ Moriarty, who's an adjunct faculty member uh, who teaches at three local colleges. Mm -hmm. uh, so, MJ, I saw you nodding your head as Warren was talking about, you know, how he's, uh, uh, you know, advertising the class on his own and uh, has a, another job uh, to make ends meet. Uh, you know, is it surprise? Do you, do you think your students know that this is what adjuncts, uh, this is their reality? You know, I, I don't think they know at all. I think that in, in, in a way, this is a, a lovely part of it, is they think of us as professors. 
And so I don't feel that the students that I have or even my full-time faculty colleagues look down on us in any way. I felt like I, I have been um, shown a great deal of respect from my department chairs, um, from my um, from my colleagues, and um, from my students. I feel very valued personally um, with all those relationships. But um, but yeah, I think that maybe we need to advertise it a little bit more clearly that um, that there is a distinction and that we knew, do need. Uh, some supports put in place so that we can continue to do a, a, as good a job as we can. I wanted to bring into our conversation Colleen Flaherty, who's faculty con- correspondent for Inside Higher Ed. Uh, she's covered uh, this issue of adjuncts uh, extensively. Colleen, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we just heard uh, for a little bit from two uh, different uh, Connecticut residents who adjunct. Um, I'm curious if you could talk about in your reporting, uh, you know, is this similar to what you're hearing from uh, part-time faculty? And you know, how has this practice of hiring uh, these non-tenure track positions really grown on campuses nationwide? Right. Well, you can't you can't see me. I'm on the phone, but I'm also nodding my head um, <laughs> listening to these stories. Um, uh, unfortunately, stories like your guests and even Theta Hunters are not uncommon. Um, there has basically been, since the 1970s, a reversal in uh, job security and job roles among uh, professors. In 1970, about 75% of professors were tenured or on the tenure track as assistant professors. And today, it's basically flipped, where we have about 25% of professors tenured or tenure track, uh, and the rest are either full-time non-tenure track or adjuncts. Um, and, you know, we use that word most commonly to describe people like your guests who teach a course here or there. Um, there is kind of a misconception that uh, adjuncts, you know, uh, by and large, like teaching the way that they do, um, and they teach it as sort of a, a, a hobby, or they're happy with one course, but several studies suggest that over 50% of adjuncts would, uh, like your guest mentioned, uh, like a full-time job somewhere. Um, other studies suggest that they um, take a great part of their identities from uh, their faculty positions, that they want to be more included in the campus community, and those jobs just aren't there for them. Mm. Uh, so uh, when we hear that uh, these positions are increasing uh, versus these uh, tenured positions, strictly for the money, is this why administrators at colleges and universities are going this route? Right. Um, so when we don't really hear college and university administrators say strictly for the money, but the term that they use often is flexibility, institutional flexibility. They'll say things, uh, they'll say enrollment uh kind of ebbs and flows and say that they need adjunct professors um, to be flexibility within their staffing, uh, you know, sort of portfolios to be able to let a professor go when a class doesn't fill up or hire one quickly when one doesn't. Um, And basically just that that these needs for flexibility um, make the tenure track less and less Mm -hmm. um, tenable for them. 
I mentioned earlier, Colleen, that uh, we just did a show about uh, the high cost of uh, higher education. Mm-hmm. We have universities in our state of Connecticut. Um, if you're going full-time, room and board, other student fees, you're looking at $64,000 uh, a year. Right. So the question is, where is the money going if they're not paying right. people to work full-time with benefits? All right. So that's a great question. Uh, it's a very complex question. Um, certainly, there has been massive defunding of uh, public higher education. And that, uh, you know, since the 1970s, it's not a coincidence that we're seeing, um, you know, adjunct uh, employment rates rise as public funding for higher education decreases. Um, but if you want, you know, an exact, if you, if you want to link instructional costs to the escalating or arguably skyrocketing cost of college. You can't necessarily do that. Um, instructional costs have stayed relatively flat for a long time, and some studies put them uh, faculty salaries accounting for only 31 cents on the dollar of institutional budgets. So uh, where is the money going? Um, administrative costs are greatly um, outpacing those of instructional costs, and there are a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, student services, institutions competing for each other to attract um, a diminishing pool of applicants. It's a really complicated picture, but again, it's not. Uh, it's it's the numbers aren't really there to show that that college is as expensive as it is because of an instructional costs, especially now as we see um, adjunct the adjunctification of higher ed. Uh, You're hearing Colleen Flaherty, faculty correspondent for Inside Higher Ed, as we learn more about uh, why uh, the rate of uh, part-time faculty or adjuncts or non-tenured track positions uh, are increasing at campuses across the country. Uh, You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Warren uh, from West Haven is calling in. Warren, go ahead. Hi. Um, So uh, I... I'm one of the winners um, in the academic lottery because I got a tenure track job um, 22 or 23 years ago. Um, and, and, and so I hire part-time faculty all the time. And I see, their, um, I see their CVs because they write me for jobs. And it's absolutely heartbreaking um, to see really high-quality people who, and I want to be really blunt here, will never get yeah a line position. We'll never land a tenure track job because there are fewer and fewer of them. The only thing that's really going to help, I believe, the um, overall working conditions and benefits for part-time faculty, for adjunct faculty, is not individual efforts to advertise your courses, even though it may be essential. It's to unionize. It's happening all around the country, particularly at public universities, but also at my own. And that helps raise salaries. It helps uh, increased benefits. It helps fa- uh, adjunct faculty get a better look at what their schedule is going to be the following term. Um, that's really the. I, I really think that that's the only hope for adjunct faculty to be able to live um, to live a life um, where they can support themselves and their families and have something to do with a, a profession that um, that they love and doesn't love them back. 
Well, Warren from West Haven, thank you for bringing up that point, uh, who also works at University of Hartford. Uh, our guest in studio who adjuncts uh, MJ Moriarty. Uh, so he mentioned uh, unionization, um, and that's something that uh, University of Hartford does have. So tell us about um, you know, how long ago was that where um, the uh, staff were able to unionize, and is that something you supported? Um, yeah, I was part of the unionization drive. Um, for it's a it's an adjunct um, union that's um, associated with the um, Four Cs, which is the uh, Congress of Community Connecticut Community Colleges, and um, and for me, it's just been in the past really the past year that the the union contract has kicked in. So I mean, there's still a ways to go, but for me, I I kind of thought it was important to get involved for two reasons for. The principle of the thing, if if these universities are really um, financially and structurally dependent upon adjunct labor, there needs to be a, a fairer system that put in place. And personally, if I wanted to make this career that I really loved tenable for me and, and my husband, um, who also does the same thing, um, then I needed to kind of you know put my money where my mouth was and, and do something to advocate mm-hmm. for ourselves. Uh, Warren Towler is with us, uh, adjunct professor at Capital Community College. Uh, he's on the phone. Uh, Warren, uh, has being part of a union helped you? Well, I became part of the four C's <clears throat> and became active as a delegate for part as a part-time rep last year. And the first question that came to mind was, and this came about when I said I was going for to go to school to get my EMT license, I applied for, for professional development fines. The tuition for the course was 2000 And when I looked at how the money was allocated, the majority of the money, even within our union, went to the full-time <clears throat> faculty and only about maybe 15% of the total amount to the uh, part-timers. And I said, this is kind of inverted. If part-timers are 80% of our, of our rank and file, why such a minuscule amount of professional development funds versus for the others to go to conferences and all kinds of other things? I got a blank stare. Mm. But we had elections back in the spring. We have a new union president in the four C's. And this is something I want to pursue because one of the things I said is, as the gentleman who said who, who was tenured year, you know, a couple decades ago, he hit it right on the head. We're there, but do we as adjuncts know each other? Are we communicating with each other? So my goal is I want to increase the channel of communications within the adjuncts within my university, within my school, and then reach out to my counterparts at other schools so that we actually begin to develop <clears throat> that grassroots voice that is going to be able to make a difference. Mm. I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's one of the tracks I think we're on. We just have to learn to talk to each other, share our stories, get to know what everybody else is going through. And there's so many common stories. It's like, hey, we come together as one voice, and I think we can uh, start to make some inroads. Uh, well, I want to thank Warren Tyler for joining us uh, to tell us a little bit about his story. Uh, before we head to break, Colleen Flaherty, who's faculty correspondent for Inside Higher Ed, uh, we heard about uh, unionization uh, efforts in Connecticut. Um, is this something growing across the country, and does it does it help? Right. Uh, so Warren's experience is um, kind of fascinating because certainly within unions there are um, some internal dynamics um, that uh, – I have heard about before adjuncts say that the unionization within 
conditions for adjuncts that are in unions with full-time tenure track faculty are um, sometimes challenging uh, because full-time faculty members sometimes don't recognize all of their specific needs. Mm -hmm. Um, But overall, the data do say that uh, adjuncts who are unionized um, have higher salaries, that they have increased job security, so you're not getting that call, uh, you know, on September 1st after you've worked all summer to prepare a course that, oh, sorry, your job, you know, Mm -hmm. your course didn't fill up and we don't need you after all. Um, In some cases, they do get some health benefits. Um, So they they do have better working conditions. Um, And I would say that within the last few years in particular, there's been a push for adjunct-specific unions on private campuses. Um, the Service Employees International Union is uh, largely responsible for that, although there are other unions involved. Um, and those first contracts are very promising. However, they haven't obviously solved this larger adjunct um, issue that hopefully we'll be able to talk about later is uh, also learn- linked to st- student learning conditions that have negative impact mm-hmm. on, on student learning conditions as well. Colleen Flaherty is faculty correspondent for Inside Higher Ed. She's going to stick around with us. Uh, but I want to do, thank our uh, in-studio guest, MJ Moriarty, for joining us, who is an adjunct at three different local colleges. Uh, MJ, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Lucy. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Uh, as Colleen mentioned, what is the impact on this rise in adjuncting across uh, the country on them and the students they teach? We're also going to hear from someone who left academia, and we're going to find out why. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired on September 19th, 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio is hosting a coffee break at local coffee shops across Connecticut to hear from you. What issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs? I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Join me and the Where We Live team at Silk City Coffee in Manchester, Connecticut, Tuesday, December 10th. We can't wait to meet you. Check out Where We Live's Facebook page for more information. We're focusing on faculty at colleges and universities in the U.S. and the fact staff like adjuncts face job instability or pay and few benefits. Do you think about that when choosing a higher ed institution for your son or daughter? You can join us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, On the phone with us is Colleen Flaherty, faculty correspondent for Inside Higher Ed. And joining us now uh, is Erin Bartram, who finished her Ph.D. at UConn in 2018. Uh, But last year, uh, she wrote a piece about her decision to leave adjunct work in academia. Uh, Erin, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Unlike uh, Warren and MJ, who we heard from earlier, you really wanted a career in academia. You got your PhD from UConn. What happened? Uh, Actually, just one correction. I got my PhD at the end of 2015, which sort of helps explain my trajectory. But yes, in many cases, my experience is a bit more typical than than either of your guests or even Dr. Hunter. Um, I finished my PhD actually while I was in my first full-time non-tenure track position at the University of Hartford after three uh, subsequent sort of three sequential one-year positions. Um, I decided to leave academia. I had been on the job market uh, each year. I had applied for as many positions as were were possible in my field, which is 19th century uh, U.S. history. And I didn't get a full-time position. Mm. Um, And one thing that I think is really important 
I appreciate the desire to commend the brilliance of various scholars who haven't gotten jobs. The problem is the market is so bad. Everyone who isn't getting a job mm-hmm. is very, very well qualified and brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and after three years, essentially, there's there's the idea that, well, if you were going to get a job, you would have gotten one by now. Um, and so I decided to, to try to pursue other options. The other problem is framing, framing leaving academia as um, something that's difficult because this is your passion. While true is not the only reason that people stay in the game, um, getting out, as Dr. Hunter's story shows, having any gaps in your resume makes it basically impossible to get back in. And finding a job outside academia is incredibly difficult, largely because of really unfounded stereotypes that people outside of academia have about those of us in academia. And I think it's important to note adjunct salaries are incredibly low. Tenure track salaries are far lower than the general public thinks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the life of academic privilege is not, is not real. Um, the, the stereotype of what a professor's life is like is simply not the case. Um, and, and to continue to perpetuate that, I think, does does a lot of damage. Uh, that piece that you wrote that uh, went viral uh, last year, you talk about how when you did make that decision to leave, how you really felt like you lost a, a part of your identity uh, because of uh, all of the the, the, um, the topics and the people that you studied. Uh, you really had this trajectory that it was hard to just let that all go. So tell us how what you're doing now. Uh, well, one one thing that's important, I even though I decided to leave uh, the search for a tenure track job, it was very difficult to find another position, and I ended up having to pick up an adjunct job. Um, I adjuncted again at one of the Yukon regional campuses, which I loved very much. Um, but I had to do that in some sense because I I was going to job interviews where where people were saying, "But don't you just really want to go back to academia?" Mm. Which is not only impossible. That kind of constant rubbing salt in the wound, this this idea that, oh, you'll just go back. There is no going back. If you get someone there, you know, in front of your desk, who's a job candidate for a non-academic job, they're not going back. Um, And and so I eventually, uh, I'm now working at the Mark Twain House and Museum uh, in a part-time position as the school programs coordinator. And I'm very lucky to be able to use actually a lot of the work that I've done, but it's not my field and it's, it's not my research um, in any way. And, and so when I left academia, I was also leaving a book manuscript that I had uh, half written and I finished publishing a journal article, which I can't actually read because it's behind a paywall. Um, and I left behind an enormous network of, of people. Um, and this piece of mine that went viral was largely about what, what academia loses mm-hmm. when thousands and thousands of people um, are unable to, to find full-time employment. And actually, Colleen was the first higher ed reporter to pick up anything yeah. um, on that piece. I think Colleen's point that you made right before the break is a really important one. And, and I think it's notable. The Atlantic has published probably half a dozen pieces on this topic in the past 10 years. There's been lots of coverage of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really clear that calls for solidarity with people outside academia haven't worked, saying acad- uh, adjuncts are poorly paid. 
that that doesn't resonate with people who are worried about the the cost of college. Well, let's uh, let's go to uh, Aaron. Yeah. Let's go to Colleen Flaherty before we run out of time because of that point that she did make at the end of the break. Colleen, uh, again, we're focusing on the the human toll that it takes on people who uh, want careers in academia, as Aaron said, who are brilliant but they they can't seem to get on that path. Uh, the impact also on on students. Right. Right. So uh, the human toll is related to the um, educational toll. Um, adjunct activists um, and you know allies like to say that adjunct working conditions are student learning conditions. Uh, there have been many studies that highlight um, the uh, negative impact on students of adjunct working conditions. And this is not because adjuncts are bad teachers. Far from it. They're often extremely passionate, um, you know, Many times it's only their passion for what they do that, that kind of keeps them in the game for as long as they stay in it. But it's because very often um, adjuncts don't have office space. They don't have access to professional development funds or, you know, similar access to their tenure track peers. They are rushing from campus to campus to try to teach courses um, to make ends meet, as we've heard already today on your show. Um, and sometimes it's as silly as not having, uh, you know, an email address that's, that's easy for students to find on the web and contact them. Um, so basically, a lot of research suggests that um, the retention and prompt graduation rates that colleges and universities are so interested in is linked to, especially in the first couple of years of college, student and faculty interaction, students being able to make close bonds with at least one faculty member, um, that has a great impact on their ability to, or their likelihood to stay mm-hmm. in college and to graduate on time. And when you have an adjunct who's there one semester, but not necessarily the next, um, or who isn't able to stay after class again because they're rushing to another campus, or who doesn't have office hours because they don't have an office hour, because they don't have an office, that is going to impact um student learning experience. Well, I want to thank uh, Colleen Flaherty for joining us. Uh, That's a good point uh, to end on. Faculty correspondent for Inside Higher Ed. Uh, Colleen, thank you. Also, Erin Bartram, who finished her PhD at UConn in 2015. Uh, She left academia. She's co-founder and editor of Contingent Magazine. Uh, We thank Erin for joining us today here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks for listening.